Hey, listener, it's The Matt Report. It's been a while uh, since September, I think, since I published an episode. And I'm giving you a bit of an update today and one of my favorite episodes of The Matt Report ever because I've been recollecting on the uh, the archive of Matt Report, the direction of Matt Report. You know, been doing it now for 10 plus years. And a lot of the stuff we've talked about here has been about WordPress. And if you've been following me on social and some of the updates I've sent here, I have a new WordPress endeavor, uh, well, new as in a year plus old, over at thewpminute.com. And this is where I'm sort of drawing that line in the sand. Whereas if you want to follow more WordPress stuff, uh, if you want to hear more commentary, more interviews about WordPress, like the stuff I was doing here, you're going to want to follow the WP Minute at thewpminute.com. I'll be launching a, a more long-form podcast, much more in line with what I'm doing here uh, with the Matt Report, or what I have done with the Matt Report. So I'll give you a quick preview of where I think the podcast and the content from the Matt Report will be headed uh, into 2023. As we all sort of face this uh, economic uncertainty, I feel like we'll have a boom in WordPress again, a boom in services, and um, you know, people sort of rolling up their sleeves and getting to work as, uh, as I've put it, the blue-collar digital worker in our space. And that's the type of content and storytelling and interviews that I'm really interested in. So while, yes, there might be folks here who are using WordPress uh, and talking about WordPress, the idea is to really explore what it's like, um, you know, as we sort of all get ready to, I don't want to say rebound, but explore something that's not uh, just a tagline of side hustling or startups or buzzwords, but people who are just, hey, I want to build something in the digital landscape and charge a good price, charge a fair price, make a living, have happy customers, and do the right work. <laughs> it's not about, you know, maximizing profits and lead gen and courses. And yes, I mean, it might all have some place in the discussion. Um, but, you know, there are going to be large amounts of people who are now learning, have learned through WordPress, who have learned coding, who have learned no-code solutions. And now as we look at AI to sort of buffer, um, you know, what might take years of education to now being able to spit something out pretty efficiently and quickly to not do the entire job, but to to sort of propel somebody into into the space. And I think that's where we're going to see a lot of new workers come. Uh, into the into the playing field. So that's the type of content. That's the kind of storytelling. Blue collar digital worker. Let me know what you think. Uh, send me an email and uh, or message me on Twitter at Matt Medeiros and let me know what you think about that topic. If that's you, hey, maybe we can do an interview if you have some really good story to tell. What I want to share with you today is a decade old podcast. And before you quit, <laughs> let me tell you, it is one of the top three podcast interviews that I've ever done right here on the show and very relevant today, a decade later, uh, with a good friend or was a good friend. I haven't really kept in touch with him. Jose Caballer, he has done a lot uh, in the design and education space. Um, those of you who know Chris Doe uh, from the future, he sort of helped him kick that off when he was doing the school. So, you know, if, if you're still following what Chris Doe is doing, uh, Jose Caballero had a tremendous impact on getting 
Chris's, well, I guess I'll say it, the career of the future in place. I mean, that's my two cents on it. And this interview that I'm about to, that you're about to hear is one of the top three that I've ever done. It's a decade old, but it's awesome. It is awesome. Uh, just the reminder, though, if you're listening to this right now, a lot of the stuff that he's mentioning doesn't exist anymore. The school doesn't exist at the capacity that it, it did back then, nor I don't even think it really even uh, functions anymore. So he might talk about, you know, jo joining the school and doing other things. That stuff does not exist anymore. Um, although, you know, check out his socials. Maybe it does. I haven't seen it in quite some time. But all of this is really relevant uh, in today's world where we're still learning how to price. We're still learning how to deal with customers. We're still, you know, trying to figure out the web. Uh, so I just thought it was a fantastic interview and I wanted to re-share it here for you today. It's MattReport.com. Um, message me on Twitter, at Matt Medeiros, and let me know what you're up to. Let me know what you're thinking, and uh, hopefully you stay connected to this podcast. The WPMinute.com if you want all things WordPress related. I'm a graphic designer by training. I went to school in Los Angeles in a school called Pasadena. Well, in Pasadena, actually, not Los Angeles. In a school called Art Center College of Design. I graduated in 1996. Went to work in New York at the dot-com boom. Big agency called Razorfish right at the beginning. I was the 18th employee. Worked there for six years. Learned a lot. Became creative director of the LA office. Left that to start the group, which was a digital agency in 2001. And from 2001 to 2012, I did the group from 2005 to 2008 we grew the group fairly fairly aggressively and we made it into the Inc 500 it was it's a pretty pretty interesting time worked on a lot of startups over 40 startups in that time and then in 2001 I started sorry 2012 about 10 months ago to be exact actually on February of this month I started the school which is an education movement to help teach to help people learn how to collaborate execute and really thrive in the digital economy Awesome. What is your, what's your exact experience of working with or strategizing for WordPress projects? That's a good question. We've worked, I've worked with a lot of different CMS platforms, everything from Drupal to enterprise forms in the past. And, and then WordPress, I started using it for projects, getting our clients who may, maybe didn't have huge budgets to use WordPress as a CMS for their websites, which again, WordPress had a reputation for being blogging platform. We've been using WordPress or we had been using WordPress for the group since 2005. I've gotten to meet a lot of people, including some of the founders of WordPress over over, over the years, and or, or, or one of the founders of WordPress, who's a, who's a venture capitalist now. But the idea is that that we said, hey, how do we do it a little bit more effectively, a little bit more inexpensively? And it became, at that point, you know, this is in 2010 maybe, clear that it was a great platform for clients. So we hired people that knew what they were doing. They were really great. And we did two to three medium sites, actually small sites, relative to our budget. So we're about $30,000, $40,000 where we use WordPress as a CMS. And, and it worked out pretty well. Nice. You're bringing up some pretty large numbers, especially for the audience, the people in the audience who are either the, the, the first time freelancer just getting into the, into the gig. And I have this whole thing about the $500 web designer and the $500 client. What are some of the big ticket budgets for websites that the newbie might not know about? Like hundreds of thousands or... Well, here's the issue, and this is an interesting question because, and, and I want to do an episode actually of This Week in Web Design about this. Jason Calacanis from This Week in Startups one, one day asked me on his show about budgets. He was kind of poking around being curious about, well, what's, what's, what does an agency cost? What's the relative cost? And I told him what, the magnitude of five where, you know, if 
if a boutique agency, this is not an individual, but if a small boutique agency is charging five, between five and 15K, a medium or larger agency is going to be charging 25 to 50K. And then one of the big agencies, I'm talking about for the exact same website, one of the big agencies is going to be charging 150 to 250K. That Those jumps are exponentially really big and people get confused, especially clients are like, wait, a website should cost me $500. My cousin Jimmy can do it. Why don't you have that? You kind of thing. And I don't know. There's Sorry, I apologize. That's okay. I'll edit that. <laughs> but what, what really people pay for is really the confidence and the understanding of the business, the design. It's really the package, the, the performance of it strategically in, in terms of assurance, what I, call, what I call plausible deniability. So here's the scenario. You have an executive at a large company, entertainment company, let's say here in LA, who is sent out a bid for a project to do a large website with content management, in this case, Drupal. And three agencies bid. The group is one of them. A Racerfish, where I used to work before, is another one. And the team loves us. They want to go with us. But the VP of the division of the entertainment company says, no, 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 I don't know who these guys are. Go with Racerfish. So he's going for plausible deniability. If the project goes sideways, I hired one of the biggest agencies and oldest agencies in, in, the, in the space. It wasn't my fault. It was their fault. So that's what he wants or what she wants. They want that. So if you're a small freelancer and you're sitting at home going, crap, how do I charge you $10,000 for a website or how do I increase my prices? That's why I started the school. So a lot of the people that are school members are there because they're trying to figure out how to build agencies, how to build a practice. And some of the kids are like, they started with one or two people and now they're at 10 or 15 and they've gone from 5,000 to 10,000 to 20,000 to 30,000. And they're like, oh, I got my first $30,000 project. All of that is about behaving as an agency and acting as an agency and giving people the confidence that you're meeting their business goals. And that's how you get bigger clients. That's, that's awesome that you just answered. That was my next question. Is there just like that, what's that one actionable tip that you think you should tell people to say, look, if you really want to shoot for that level of budget and grow to be an agency, what's that one thing that they should just stop doing right now and start doing tomorrow or, or start doing right now? Well, just ask for it. Just stop just stop saying yes to a $500, $1,000, $2,000 project. The minute you stop saying yes to those, then you're like, oh, crap, now nobody's going to hire me. That's not true. Mm-hmm. Now that means that whoever, if for, I'll give you an example. One, stop asking for or stop looking for $500 projects. Two, put your price ranges on your website so that it cuts out anybody who's not interested in that. You obviously have to get your website up to a certain level of professionalism to look and feel like, hey, this is someone that is pro. And what I would, that's not that hard with WordPress, especially with WordPress, since a lot of the templates already look pro out of the box. You just got to have the right content. So the, the one, stop, stop doing the smaller projects and start doing asking for the bigger projects, even by putting the pricing on there. And then the, the next thing is kind of a tough thing to recommend because it's not necessarily a thing that we like easily do as creatives or as a developer. And it's to do a, a little business plan, like just who do you want to be? How big do you want to be? What kind of clients you want to have? It's, it's, it's hard to manifest to the universe, you know, what you are and who you are as an entity or even as an individual freelancer without putting it out on paper or thinking about it. So answering those questions is really critical. And that's one of the first things I did when I started the group in 2001. And the reality is between 2001 and 2005, it was me in my house, in my loft in downtown, 
which happened to be really cool, and it looked like an office. You, you, the bedrooms were around the corner, and the and the I remember the the conference room was kind of an offshoot of the kitchen, and there was an island, but then a long table. And I would cook for the clients. It was it was great. It was fun, and that was till 2005. Then I got an office about 2004 ish, late 2004. I got a huge office in downtown LA because it was possible. We were at the at the beginning of this urban renewal, and then I'm like, woo, yeah, let's do it. And we took the risk to get this huge office, and when people walk in, it's like wow, great. So at that point, obviously, the perception really shifted. And I started doing a business plan to to grow because that's what I wanted to do. And literally, I called my competitors in the space. And I said, hey, I'd like to buy you coffee and ask them how they grew their businesses. And they said, yes. I mean, people are like, oh, my God, really? <laughs> they, they know about you already. So right. if you're doing a good job, they've heard about you. Yeah. Worst case scenario, they say no, but they say, hey, you end up collaborating with them, which is what happened with me. Yeah. So this is a long answer to the question, what do you do next? Yep. The first one is ask for it. Just ask for more. Don't stop asking for little. And if they say no, sign out. Great. Good luck. And um, then the next one is start putting it on your website, your price ranges. So in that business plan that I mentioned, we had our price ranges. We said projects at that time, 25 to 50. I think it was 75 to 85 and then 150 to 250. That's still, those are the price ranges that we set in our business plan. And then we, up, we increased those a little bit later to 75 being the lowest. And, and that fluctuated with the economy. We would lower the, the lower threshold. Yeah. One of the, uh, do you think there's a, a challenge to folks, especially, let's say they're sitting in the middle of, of Idaho or, or me just sitting in the small city of, of Providence, Rhode Island, is there a, a lack or, or is there a challenge for those of us who are not in New York, LA, being in those bigger markets? No, I work and collaborate with people all over the, the United States and all over the world, including India, including Portugal, which you mentioned that you're from, Peru. I haven't worked with anybody from Brazil, but the geographic location is, is not necessarily the, uh, the real barrier. I think the real barrier is building a brand and awareness outside of your geographic location that's outside of the fray of like online, such so as like Elance or Odesk or wherever someone might find you. And that's really important. You're doing a perfect example of what a brand building exercise is, which is you're interviewing me, which obviously gets you and your audience associated to, gets us associated together. You're doing exactly what I've done all along, which is a con you, you have to stop thinking that you're a, a, a developer or a designer. You're a consultant. Those happen to be your skills. Fine. And that's what you're good at and that's what you're going to do. But you really have to break away from being shy and in the corner. And Now, that's if you want to make more and if you want to thrive. Now, if you can't do it yourself, you obviously need to find people that will help you with it. Hey, I'm a badass developer. And of course, a developer actually wouldn't brag like that. They would say, hi, I'm a developer, I'm kind of okay, but I need help with the business stuff, which is fine. And, and again, that's why the school community helps each other. Hey, so-and-so needs help figuring out this part, and, or you're really good at sales, and I'm not, but I'll help you on your projects, and we'll learn together. It's important not to do it alone. Yep. Uh, so if you're in a small geographic location and you're in your bedroom doing WordPress development, reach out. If you're a small studio, if you're a, a, a home entrepreneur, reach out. The three things from a marketing standpoint that we put into our business plan in 2001, I didn't know what the hell to put in it. I'm like, I, we have marketing. We have no money to spend on marketing. What do you put in there? And the three things we put was education. Like all the partners seem to be involved in education. And I was teaching at Art Center at the time, a class called Web Projects, coincidentally. And my business partner, Mary Gribben, who, who co-founded the group with me, was also teaching at Art Center in the night program. 
the same class. So we were really teaching the people how to do it. The kids, obviously, my end of the undergrad and the night courses, it was professionals doing continuing education. Guess what? Our first big clients came from that class. They were like, hey, we need help doing our strategy. Can you coach me? And can you help me with the web design stuff that I'm doing? And we said, sure. She said, sure. And again, we had we come from an agency world, so we know it's okay to charge rates of $150 an hour, $125 an hour as consultants. We had experience dealing with clients already. If you don't have that, you can obviously start a little lower than that. But the initial question is, can somebody in, 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 a, in, a, in a smaller kind of context do it totally? I mean, they can totally do it. Awesome. Education, edu- sorry, those three things, and I'm totally like going all over the place here. <laughs> the three things were education, community involvement, and doing great work. Doing great work is an, a given. Yep. Community involvement is outreach. Education is doing your podcast, writing blog posts, showing people that you're an expert. Awesome. One of the things that I love about following you as a fan, watching you on the show, is you don't really, you're not that typical pixel pusher. You're not talking about kerning of fonts and, and this color blue versus that color blue. I never hear you really say that. What I really like is you are that consultant meets business guy meets marketing guy. How important is that for these folks to have that nowadays in, in order to succeed? It's a great question, no, and thank you. I, I am at the end of the day, a designer. So at the end of the day, I do have those conversations about color and about pixels and about letting and about kerning. I, I just have them in a slightly different context. And after all these things are taken care of, not before. So the the real idea is to really reverse. For example, the episode that we're doing on this day that we're recording this for This Week in Web Design is going to be on the process, the inception, the execution, and the launch of a website. Um, it, it's important... And, and I think one of the obstacles for people is that they they might not necessarily see themselves as that. They might think that it's about technology or that it's about design. It isn't about design. It isn't about technology. If you think of it ultimately from a user experience, quote unquote, point of view, and you talk to a customer and you ask them, what is it that you need? They're not, they say they need a website, but that's not true. Don't believe them. And I say this to customers straight up. You don't need a website. You know, you, you need to increase your sales or you need to communicate who you are and what you do, what your business is, whether it's personal or whether it's business oriented. That's what you need. You can do that with freaking smoke signals if you wanted to, but we all communicate via the web nowadays, so that's why you need a website. What is it that, who is your audience? This is the next question. What do you want them to do? What are the goals? Those three things, by the way, is what we call the trinity. So defining who you are, the brand, defining your users or your, or your customers or your members, your constituents, whatever communi- context you want to put it into, the people around you that you interchange value with. And the third thing is obviously what are the goals? That's what you're asking the client to do. If you let the client just give you a feature list, you're completely under the control of the client. They're te- you're basically a monkey doing tasks, putting in pixels, putting in plugins. But here's the challenge. That's what you might really love to do. And you can't go counter to your true nature. So one of the things I developed is an, uh, an assessment to figure out whether you're flaky, evil, dorky, or obnoxious. Those sound funny and you're like, well, screw you for calling me flaky. But I'm flaky, obnoxious which all that means is I'm creative and marketing-oriented. A dorky, flaky person is technical and creative-oriented. Most WordPress developers, most designers that are technically-oriented will likely be dorky-flaky or flaky-dorky. 
some hardcore people that are like back-end developers will be evil, which is, which is basically numeric orientation convergence. And, and I, I developed the assessment based out of, on a very well-known assessment called the DISC assessment. Um, and, and, but this is for us as creatives and as developers and as people that do the work that the type of work that we're talking about. If you don't, if you know yourself and you know that you're not, pro, if you're not, that's not your forte, you're not very outgoing to become a consultant, then slowly you need to learn it and find a community that can help you and people that you can learn how to do it from little by little and, and find ways to make it your own and to do it yourself. Harry, who's my co-host on my show, he's dorky, flaky, and he's very technically oriented and he's really about doing it and the pixel pushing. But he's become a great consultant for startups. He knows how to ask the hard questions and in his own way. Nice. So. Did, I've always wondered, was that was your matchup with you and Ari intentional to show that, that difference? Or were you just friends with him and that's how it started, him coming on the, on the show to co-host? Well, it's both. Think about it. If I'm flaky obnoxious and I'm really like just not technically oriented, who am I going to seek out? Yeah. I'm going to seek out somebody who's dorky, flaky, who's technically oriented. I actually hired him at the group five, six, a long time ago now, 2005 basically for a project. And then I told him to come on board full time. Why? Because he was very much different than me. He was very technically oriented. He knew Flash. He can do WordPress. He can do code, HTML front end. Not a lot of back end, but he can do, he, can, he, he was a, what I call a Swiss Army knife. So with my sales and marketing abilities going out and getting clients, we can do a whole client with him. And keeping in mind that we're charging agency rates. And he, he was, for me, he was the most profitable employee because he has so much output. And I'm only paying him $50,000, $60,000 a year, but I'm, I'm billing him out at a higher amount. And I'm making three dollars $400,000 a year from him. Mm-hmm. That's like for quadruple markup on the resource, right. which is, but that's the, that's why I, I, I sought out and that's why Ari is my co-host. You bring up a, another good thing about numbers really quick on, a, on an agency like the group, like the bigger ones from New York, how many, is it just how many projects you can do a year per how many team members you have? Is there a typical, we only do 12 projects a year because that's all we really focus on? It's a typical business. It's a, you're a consultant. You sell people. It's like a law firm. There, there's a lot of different or there's a lot of new business models that are coming up, subscription and, and other things like that for services. And the reason for that is because it's very hard to manage projects. Your question is how many projects can you handle? First of all, it's up to your to your kind of limit. The bigger you get, the more people you need on a project, right? You need a project manager, you need a tech lead, you need a designer, you need an information architect. That's because there's going to be a lot of large volume. For a small project that you can have all those roles, you're going to have to do those roles anyway. Somebody's going to have to manage a client and be account. Somebody's going to have to architect the application. Somebody's going to have to design it and somebody's going to have to build it. So if you're a WordPress person that does all that, you know, Come on, no, no, you can only take one client at a time. Right. Otherwise, you're nuts. If you have two clients and you have to manage the calls, <laughs> and where are we in the process? And at some point, your head explodes. Yeah. And that's actually what happened to me. Not that my head exploded. Obviously, I'm still here. But early on, I really had these horrible headaches. Like, I thought I had a brain tumor. Literally, I thought I had a brain tumor. And I went to, I went to the hospital, to the emergency room at UCLA. I got a MRI cost me three grand, and at the time I didn't have insurance, so it was expensive. And I, they did say, hey, we don't know what it is. We can't tell. And a few weeks later, or like a month later, the project I was on finished, and my headache went away. My brain <laughs> went away. So I was stressed out by managing all these different things. So when I decided to scale in 2005, really getting all the right resources and finding the people to help you is important. 
And if you're a, a 10 person agency, boutique can probably do five projects at a time, maybe three to five. Realistically, and, getting it done right with, with high quality to keep it elevating yourself up. That's also, also pushing it. Yeah. Five is pushing it. Yeah. No, I, I totally agree with that number. Um, next question, and is kind of, I'm trying to think about how I'm going to formulate this one. I want to start talking about how you came into creating the school, the product known as the school, product service known as the school. I remember when you first launched it on the show, I think you were selling it for a larger static price, thousand bucks. Still, it's still, seven, oh, you, those were kits. Those were agency in a box kits, yeah. Okay, agency in a box kits. And we still, still, yeah. still have those. Yeah. Um, I was thinking... Man, that's that's a great that's a that's something I could really use. But could I justify the cost back then dealing with the smaller client? It was almost like a square peg in a round hole kind of thing. I'd love to really buy this to learn the value, but I don't think my clients could get this stuff that I would introduce to them. Is that yeah, still the case. Did you battle with that? Is that something that's recurring? Yeah, it's a good point. So. I'll start with the first question. How did I start the school? And, and for, first of all, it's it's been a very personal journey and, and something that's taken me to many different places and, and very rewarding yet challenging all at the same time. Charles Dickens said it best, the worst of time, the best of times. The, the decision came many years before probably the inception was about 2008. And it's when I saw that problem that the, the, the fundamental problem in interactive design, in web design, in services, in WordPress design, whatever you want to call it, and this whole amalgam that is the people who do stuff for the web, which is pretty much everybody at this point, advertising agencies, service agencies, it doesn't matter who it is, you're doing something online. Um, and the biggest challenge that I saw when I was at Racerfish and then with the group is that, one, people didn't speak the same language. So the developer speaks binary is what I call it because it's, it's either works or it doesn't. There's no real nuances in there. It needs to work and it needs to work right. The designer speaks creative, flaky. And, oh, it looks good in this color. Yeah, people like me because I'm a designer or because of my designs. Uh, the business stakeholder wants this needs to work. Make me money. That's it. There's not a lot of like nuances to it. And then the marketing person just wants to have the right message to the right channels and that kind of stuff. But they, when they come together on a team, it's literally a clusterfuck because none, nobody speaks the same language. Nobody uses the same process. Everybody got educated differently. One person went to design school. One person went to DeVry and the other person went to your business school. So, so with all those different education methodologies and all those different personalities and brain chemistry, literally brain chemistry, how the hell do you make a team work? So process, the process that we developed at the group, and I actually at Racerfish, I was also on the process committee that developed the Racerfish process. Keeping in mind, for those of you who are watching, I look really young, but I'm actually 40, and I, when I was at Racerfish, I was 24, and we were making that shit up. <laughs> I was like, yeah, information architect, that's the new term everybody's using. That's what you are, excellent. And, and the processes evolved, the combination of things from business stakeholders, from user experience, all of that stuff kind of became what you know now as a process. Now, most people don't know that there is a process because they haven't worked at an agency. But, and those agencies, like you said, LA and New York, even, by the way, just a secret, they don't have their shit together either. You, they, they, they have people who do, but when the people leave, they have to replace them with new people. They have processes that, today there's agencies that have sophisticated processes. Let's just say, there are, but not everyone does. And the percentage is small. So I, that's a problem, right? That's a big problem. So, I said, how do I educate my clients? And I started group school, 
which was doing the same thing I'm doing now, but I was doing it for the client community and educating them. And guess what? When a client came in educated already, isn't that an easy client to work with? Yeah, they know. Oh, I love your process. I love learning it at your workshop. Boom, 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 boom. Now it's easy to do it and things go like butter. Then I knew I was going to launch it as a business and I hesitated to do it. It was kind of, it was, a, it was do I stop consulting, which is my bread and butter and how I make money and how I pay my bills, especially if you think of it at the large amounts of, of, of the, the large numbers that we, even though we, we weren't doing the large numbers we were doing in 2007 and 8 anymore, it was still sufficient that you really had very little incentive to stop and go in and, 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 and do a new business. It was risky and it was crazy. But personally, it was really I, that's what I wanted to do. And I knew that that was yep. my destiny. My, my dad was a preacher. My mom was a teacher. I, I love teaching and, and, and sharing all this stuff. And there's so much pain out there. People just suffering through projects and getting brain tumors like I did. And I said, <laughs> you know what? Why doesn't somebody teach this? Yeah, so. you, you brought up a, a lot of good points in that. And one of the things I try to do is try to better the WordPress community, especially the person who's just starting out learning how to sell this stuff so that they just don't sell it for 500 bucks and walk away. And I try to coach people kind of the same way as you is bringing that business mentality in. My family's business for 50 years was auto dealerships and car sales. I started selling cars at 15. So when I'm talking to people about selling websites and selling web services, it's funny that you said that like you have all these people that come together and then once they get to the project, it's just a cluster mess, right? Um, when I was selling cars, it's the same thing. Like I, there's, there's just an inherent quality of being able to walk up to somebody who's looking at a Chevy. This is from years of experience, walking up to somebody who's going to looking at a Chevy and already knowing how I'm going to interact with these people because I already know their budget. And then being able to walk up to somebody who's buying a Cadillac and just have a whole different persona, female, male, wealthy, not wealthy. Like you, you kind of learn these things as you go. I find it very hard to kind of relay that in education because it's just one of those things that you build over time. I don't know where I was specifically going with that question, but it's just one of those things I that you brought up. I think you're talking about the sales issue for, for, for the development community, for the WordPress community. Is that what you're talking about? Yeah. Like and how, how do they sell their product? How do, they, how do they sell their services? And that's one of the things I struggle with that it's just – it's. Over time, you just kind of learn these things. You learn how to interact with people. You learn how to get their body feel, how they're saying yes, nodding their head. Are they looking away? That kind of thing. And trying to understand the sales. Uh, you, you, you're, you're interviewing me right now and, and, and the sales process is just like that. Selling consultant is just that. Yep. Mr. Client, what is your problem? Okay, great. And you dig deeper. There's yep. a book I read early on. I, I happened to have, have lunch with the author. He invited me to lunch and I didn't know why, but I guess now I do. But uh, it was called Coaching Revolution by Michael Logan or by David Logan, who's a professor at USC at the Annenberg School of Communications. And it was about coaching. And it had this whole process where you, how do you coach an executive? Help them see the problem, help, help, help them say the solution, and then help them do the solution. And I'm like, damn, this is the blueprint <laughs> for selling this stuff. Because you're selling... Again, and I have this in the in the agency in a box kit. The whole kit actually brings the sales. All, it, basically, what the agency in a box is is all the stuff I used to run the group. I put it in a in a in a box. I did videos that introduce each. Boom! Here you go. It's a little big and it's a little lot to go through, but. I've had people stalk me just to get it. Say, hey, man, I need it. I need it. I'll pay ten thousand dollars. <laughs> uh, no, literally, and and because it just you have everything you need. Yep. And we're going to lower the price because we're going to cut it down into smaller into more curated or more condensed package based on the feedback I've gotten and put it out again in the in the spring, late spring. But back to your question, I read that book 
And there's another book that I think, I read a lot of books on sales. Bigler, Secrets of Closing a Sale. Oh, wait, that's not it. Actually, I think that was the title. But the consulting book was the most powerful. Sales is education. People like think sales is, and, and, and not to offend your family business, which I just shared with you earlier, that my family is also in the same business. So I don't know if I made sense there. I said that it's not like car sales where you, the, your perception of car sales. Car salesman is just giving you the options mm-hmm. of which car is right for you. They're identifying. You said it. They're identifying the person and they know cars for that person. The guys who are really good are simply good at that. Mm-hmm. Who the person is, what their needs are, and what to help them with to get. Mm-hmm. That's exactly what you need to do. Now, if you do it preemptively like I did, you do a profile of your customers. If I put them on the school website. You go to theschoolrocks.com and I put profiles of the members of the school so that they saw themselves. And guess what? I use those profiles just like you do in the user experience process to customize an experience, to customize the experience of the product that we're delivering, of the education that we're delivering. Nice. Sort of kind of wrapping up this more formal interview. I interviewed recently Stephanie Schechter, who's also part of your school group. She expressed how much uh, this changed her life. The school program changed her life. She, she didn't say, she said this to me off camera. She probably killed me for saying this, but she turned 40 this year. And the one thing she said was, I don't want to be a 55 year old woman that no one wants to hire. And I was like, wow, I mean, I would never think that way, but I can see why she's thinking that way. So she's investing in the school to just change her whole thing to find the right client. So my question to you is, this is very powerful stuff. Did you ever think that you'd be affecting people's lives like this with a product like this? That's a really good question because, first of all, Stephanie is amazing. Everything I do, I do it for her. Literally, actually, you know, she's one of the profiles. And it's not a profile. It's a person. That's the other mistake that I think we can make really easily, that you identify the profile and you treat people like profiles. Look, at the end of the day, we're human. And at the end of the day, it's about helping each other get to where we want to go. At the end of the day, it's about community. At the end of the day, it's about survival. If you strip everything off the, 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 the surface of living, like who you are, the car you drive, where you live, how much money you make, if you strip all of that away and we put us back in the caves, it's about hunting and gathering and making sure you survive. And you make babies so that you can get more hunters and more gatherers to making sure that you survive when you're old. It's that simple. And our generation, people like us, cultural creatives, people who, who some of us might not have kids yet or some of us don't want to be 55, 65 and, and still doing the same as different day. I said the same thing. I, I don't want to be 50, 60. And I saw designers in our community with their studios and continuing to practice. I'm like, ah, that's, 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 I don't see myself doing that. Yeah. I want to build something bigger. I want to do something more powerful and that changes the way that, that we as humans interact with each other. All I know how to do is web design, right? But you know what? I, I really learned, and to answer your question, that I know it was more powerful. What I did see was that the user experience process, which again, if you're confused what user experience is, watch the school, watch the, the This Week in Web Design, which is becoming the school live. User experience is just helping guide somebody through the experience of interacting with you, with whether it's your brand or whether it's your store, whether it's your, I, I, Stephanie, artisanal change. It's really about what is the experience with that. That happens to be exactly the same. The user experience process happens to be the same 
process that you find in spirituality, that you find in religion, that you find in Buddhism. All of the major philosophies of the world have the same exact structure, which is who are you, who, who's your community around you, and what do you want to accomplish with them? Those are the freaking basic structures <laughs> of this technology thing. So when people think that it's about WordPress or about technology or about pixels, you're wrong. It's not. It has nothing to do with that. Those things happen to be tools and they happen to be ways that you're making the end interactions between the people. So if you start thinking that way, not only are you going to make a bigger impact with your clients, you can fundamentally really help someone change where they are and what they are. So Stephanie's point of, of it being powerful or of it having been powerful for her is extremely transformative for me too. I mean, it, 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 me sharing this insight and me sharing what I'm doing and me helping Stephanie get to where she wants to go, school members, ultimately transforms me equally or more so than the members. That's an awesome, awesome answer. So I, I thank you for the show that you do. I thank you for the work. I am going to be joining Stephanie in the whole school movement. So it's going to be pretty fun. Let's just jump into a couple listener questions. Um, first one actually comes from me. What's it actually like to work with Jason Calacanis? I wanted to pull this aside separately from the professional interview. Jason, I know Jason, you want to pull the curtain back. You want, you want to pull the curtain back. Is that what you said? Yeah. Jason's a, it's an awesome guy. I mean, I've known him for a really long time. I knew him in New York or of him since we were kind of in circles when I was at Racerfish. I remember him delivering the first issues of the Silicon Alley Reporter to Racerfish when it was still like an 11 by 17, I think, folding like newsletter type of thing. And he's, he's, he, he embodies the entrepreneur. He's very, uh, he's very obnoxious like me. He's, 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 he's out there. He's doing a lot of really interesting things. He's originally a journalist. So he's really a creative entrepreneur, and he 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 knows how to do it. Evil and flaky. how to he's he's probably flaky evil or evil flaky, yeah. Or actually, no, I would be surprised. He's probably evil dorky. He's, he's probably the same profile, and I haven't given him the veto. But you know, you need to know how to work with people like that. Yep. You need to know how to how to. He, he's it's it's just like working with me. Yep. You need to really. Some people find it like so annoying that you're like going this way one way, and then we're going this way, and then we're going that way. That's the way it is. Awesome. Next one comes from Stephanie. How, how do you apply your background as a designer as your current role as an educator? It's a good question. That's a really good question. It's really helpful, actually. It's very powerful. If you look at the definition of is to organize things, right? It's one of, the, one of the dictionary definitions. And that's what I, you have to do when you teach. You have to organize the information. The more important thing is that I'm the audience. So I'm designing everything that I'm designing for me to understand, because quite frankly, the stuff can be really like dense, right? If, especially when a business teacher or a tech person teaches it, they're like, eh, eh, eh. <laughs> and you're like, I don't know what you're saying. So I try to simplify it. I try to visualize it. The identity that you see, I designed, well, I, I worked with someone to design it for me, with me, designer Jose Hernandez, coincidentally, his name is also Jose, who's from a school different than mine, from CalArts here in LA. And I very purposefully, because if you cut us open at the inside, we're actually kind of pinkish, no matter what color you are on the eye. The, that sounds gross. The green is for business because money is green, or at least a dollar. Blue is for tech because IBM, big blue. And orange is for marketing because it's bright and like the sun and it warms you up or something like that. So, so there you go. There's already the design background going into the education background. And then simple things like 
when we're doing the show or when we're doing PowerPoints, they're never the same color. They always shift colors mm -hmm. because people don't notice similarities. They only notice differences. So it keeps you awake. Yep. So everything I know as it is, let's, let's say it this way. Being a graphic designer, who I am, being a graphic designer that was educated in technology during the dot-com boom and in business during the 10 years through the desert of entrepreneurship at the group, I'm the perfect amalgam of the skill, the representation of flaky, evil, dorky, and obnoxious that you need in order to be able to thrive in the 21st century. That's, that's my answer. Awesome. That's an awesome that's long answer. <laughs> that's an awesome answer. So I want to wrap this up and say thank you for doing this interview. Everyone go check out mattreport.com, mattreport.com slash subscribe if you want to be in the loop with all this awesome stuff. Jose, where can people find you? Where can they say thank you? Where can they find the school? You can tweet me at Jose Caballer, J-O-S-E-C-A-B-A-L-L-E-R. And you can also go to theschoolrocks.com, theschoolrocks.com. And it's spelled S-K-O-O-L rocks.com. And one thing I wanted to say, we have the Merge Conference here in Los Angeles. And to, to even go further into how much Stephanie has kind of impacted the school, women who are transitioning from one career to the other have been such an important part of the school movement and of the growth. And it's a it's very diverse community, but I really chose to focus on that and in, in, in partnership with Tatiana Luthi, who you can see on This Week in Web Design. We're doing a conference on March 2nd and 3rd here in Los Angeles just for women who want to merge their passion and their profession, whether it's WordPress business, whether it's anything, artisanal cheese, which is what I always bring up. That's really a really great place for you guys to come together. I'm not going to be hosting it. Tatiana's going to be hosting it. I'm going to be producing it and doing one or two of the segment interviews. But it's something that I think people should check out. Awesome. All right, Jose. Thanks a lot. Thanks for doing this. Everyone go say thank you to Jose. Take care. Thank you, Matt. Bye.